Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. Thanks for joining us today. We've got another case for you, and it's a Canadian case, isn't it? It is. Today, I want to ask you, Christy, how many chances should one person get? It depends what it's for. Chances at what? Well, we've covered a lot of cases where the dirtbag that we talk about is often caught prior to the murders they commit, and then they're let go. Oh, that frustrates me so much. And sometimes it happens multiple times, which is so frustrating. It always makes you think that if only the charges had stuck, or if only they weren't granted parole, then maybe people's lives would have been saved. The system failed to protect vulnerable people. Yeah, it's really tough because often a lot of our murderers that we cover, they start with misdemeanors and lesser charges. And you can just see looking at their record, how it grows and grows to become the monsters that they are. Mm -hmm. It just escalates. Mm -hmm. Today's case has many system failures in it. Failures that ultimately led to the lives of three beautiful women being cut short. Oh no. Even in death, some would argue that the system failed them again and didn't deliver true justice for them. What? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I can feel my blood pressure rising. I'm going to get riled in this one too, aren't I? You will. So we're going to start with our murderer. Sean Cameron Lamb was a child that was failed by the system. Sean was born in 1959 in Sarnia, Ontario. His given name at birth was Daryl Dokus, and his mom was an Ojibwe single-team mother of Amjuawan First Nation. It was assumed that as a toddler, he was taken from his home in what is now referred to as the 60s Scoop, a sad period of our history when as many as 20,000 Indigenous children were taken from their homes. Oh, this has really come to light in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. According to the Indigenous Foundation, from the mid-1950s to the early 1980s, Indigenous children in Canada were taken away from their birth parents and communities, usually without the consent of their family or band, under the guise of giving them a better life. Provincial government authorities were able to do this because of the significant changes in the Indian Act in 1951. And, as a result, they assumed authority over all children's welfare. This is also mind-blowing to me that this was even happening as recent as the 1980s. Well, and I think the last residential school closed in the 1990s. That is so crazy. Mm -hmm. It's such a vile part of our history, but it is super important to talk about. And that's what's coming up this week is the National Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada. And this holiday gives us an opportunity to talk about these things and bring awareness to them. Yeah, so we can prevent our mistakes repeating themselves. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, during this time in our history, the Indigenous communities faced high rates of poverty and social economic barriers and were disproportionately supported by the government. The communities were suffering from generational trauma from the residential schools and all of the history that had led up to reservation living. The system's solution was to take all the children away. Using the poor living conditions as an excuse, children were taken and placed in foster care where they would receive proper care. These homes were largely white middle-class families where children received no support to keep their traditions and cultures. Instead, they were more or less expected to assimilate into the Eurocentric cultures and values. Yeah, they were pretty much forced to do that. Mm -hmm. 
This massive scoop of children resulted in the child welfare workers being overrun and not equipped to deal with the sheer volume of children that were being taken in. And it's so wild to me that their criteria on taking in these children was just their heritage. Yeah. In the system's chaos, proper qualifications and vetting of foster homes took a backseat. In his new foster home, with a new name, Daryl, now known as Sean, was subjected to sexual, mental, and physical abuse. He would later say in 2009 that the white family I ended up with were dysfunctional in many ways. Alcoholics, sexual sadist, violent, negative practices was their way. Their worst trait, according to Sean, was that they kept his heritage from him never revealing it to him until he was 39. What? Mm -hmm. Even by changing his name, that's just totally trying to strip his identity and start fresh, which is pretty despicable. Oh, absolutely. His loss of identity is what formed a lot of his future decisions. That's so terrible. It is not a fine moment in our history. That's for sure. Not at all. In Sean's own words, he said, not being told who he was might have led to a lifetime of trying to destroy the person he was. As a child, he felt like he never fit in with the Lamb family and suffered from isolation because of it. Well, I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. At a young age, he was molested by a distant relative of the foster families and, at the age of nine, began to drink as a way to cope. His foster parents did nothing to discourage this behavior and would actually encourage him to play bartender for them. For him, alcohol was just so easily accessible. What? Sounds like some super dirtbag foster parents. Yeah, they were not vetted at all. Oh my gosh. Well, the system was so overrun because they took away all these children at the same time. And nobody was checking up on them because they were so overrun. Yeah, it was basically, oh, you're white? Okay, you're qualified. Mm -hmm. Oh, so bad. Yeah, I'm getting angry already. By the age of 10, he attempted to escape by ending his own life and was treated for a drug overdose after ingesting a whole bottle of aspirin and washing it down with a can of pop. Oh my goodness. At 10. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those cases where you feel so bad for this little boy at the beginning, and it's hard to separate that from the dirtbag that he becomes later. By the age of 15, he was a regular at bars, and by 16, had added cocaine and heroin to his list of addictions. Oh my goodness. But I guess when you start at 9, by 16, you are going to escalate quite a bit. And with everything else going on in his life, he just needed a way to escape. Oh yeah. And when the drugs and alcohol still weren't enough to escape, at 17, he ran away from home. He physically escaped. Wow. As a youth on the streets in Ontario, Sean's conviction started in August 1976. He was put on probation for his first offense. Within three months, he was back in jail, this time in Barrie, Ontario. When fraud hadn't been enough to get him the money that he needed to live and fund his growing drug habits, he had turned to breaking into places and stealing small amounts of cash. Within a year of running away from home, Sean had landed himself in jail for six months. Oh, wow. And that's escalating quickly. He needs to support himself. Yeah. The short time in jail did little to curb his criminal behavior. From 1979 to 1980, he would be charged six more times with other offenses all over southern Ontario. The charges ranged from breaking and entering, theft, possession of narcotics, and escaping custody. Each conviction came with a small time in jail, the longest sentence being only nine months, and was often shortened with Sean being released on probation. That is so crazy. So he was probably still on probation when he committed some of those other crimes and should not have been let go. That very frequently happens with Sean. Oh my goodness. 
So remember when I asked how many chances should one person get? Yeah, he looks like he's already exceeding that amount. Mm -hmm. After that release in 1980, he racked up 15 more jail sentences, all terms being less than a year, all across Central and Western Canada. Over his criminal history, you can see a pattern of escalation happen. Petty theft to armed robbery, threats to multiple assaults. Sean's propensity for violence was clearly increasing when viewed in hindsight. So now he's becoming violent, Mm -hmm. which is super scary because he already is brazen enough to break into people's homes. And now he's mixing violence, which is a scary combination. Mm -hmm. In 1992, Sean was arrested by the Slave Lake RCMP and sexual assault entered into his criminal profile. Despite receiving a four-year sentence, he was given a second, well, I'm not really sure you can call it a second chance because by this time he's far past second chances, but whatever chance it was, he was released on parole less than a year and a half later on June 17, 1993, and within 12 days he had broken his parole terms and was sent back to jail for the rest of his sentence. After just 12 days? Mm-hmm. So he is out of control. Yeah. He has no intentions of keeping the law. No. Are you getting a good picture of what his life is like, though? Yeah. Scary. For the majority of Sean's life, he would just wander the country aimlessly with no true purpose or direction and became a career criminal. And his criminal history is one of the longest I have ever seen. We'll cover just a little bit more of it, but we could honestly sit here for days going through all of his charges and convictions. That's crazy. Sean would have periods of time when he was more stable than others, but always his life was marred by violence, homelessness, and occasional psychiatric wards for his addictions and mental health issues. Throughout different times in his life, Sean was diagnosed with a multitude of illnesses. Among them, antisocial personality disorder, depression, FASD, ADD, and bipolar disorder. Oh, that is a bad combination. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. When trying to dissect if nature or nurture had led to his difficulty in making good decisions and his propensity for drugs, it's pretty clear that both played a role. Absolutely both. Mm -hmm. It's always both, right? Yeah. Sean would marry twice and father two sons, but those relationships were unstable and the cycle of violence, abuse, and abandonment would continue to the next generation. How could you have a relationship with someone like him? In and out of jail, violence, substance abuse, it would be so hard. Well, and Sean is picking a particular type of woman. Sean would acknowledge that he would purposely look for women that were as self-destructive as he was, and that his relationships were often addiction-fueled on both sides and would frequently end in assaultive behavior. So he was going after a particular type of woman. Yeah, someone who was vulnerable and who would join him in his escapades of drugs, alcohol, crime. Yeah, his partners often had their own convictions, like one was charged with manslaughter. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So totally recipes for disaster. Yeah. And they brought children into that. Oh. Which again, just repeats that cycle. It does. In total, he faced 109 charges in his lifetime. 109? Mm Mm-hmm. And was jailed and subsequently released on parole, or because he had served his full sentence, 46 times. 109. That's Mm -hmm. 100 times too many. Honestly. He really was a career criminal. 109. This might be the biggest case of past criminal history that we have covered. Mm -hmm. You weren't lying. No. He just had so many times where he was picked up. And oftentimes his sentences, they were just small little stays in jail. 15 days, 10 days. And that's what I don't understand. If you're the judge on the 104th charge, 
aren't you looking at all those past charges and thinking, okay, this guy is not getting it. If I put him back on the street, he's going to do the exact same thing. Why did it go to 105 and then 106? Well, we'll get into what he's telling these judges to get them to release him. Yeah, but judges, I think you're a little bit smarter than this man who didn't even finish school. And look at the past. Yeah. Don't they say past behavior is a good predictor of future behavior, especially when there's no rehabilitation and he's not making any changes in his life? Oh, man. Canada, we did drop the ball. Yeah, it's a total system failure. Totally. Many of his crimes were violent in nature. His sentences, for the most part, were relatively short periods of time that would not allow for any long-lasting change to happen that could have been brought about by any institutional programming. And for a man who had been failed by the system as a child, it's not a big surprise that he wouldn't have been overly welcome to any help offered by the same system anyway. That's true. But he's also learning that I can be this violent criminal and I'm going to get a slap on the wrist. I'll get free accommodations for two weeks with my meals and then I'll get to go. Exactly. What he does learn is the perfect things to tell the judges so that they will give him a second chance. But this isn't even a second chance. It's 107, (laughs) 108, 109. Yeah, that is so wild. Yeah. By the fall of 1998, Sean had returned to live and settle in Winnipeg. There, he continued to rack up assault charges. In 2001, at the age of 41, he was applying for parole yet again. What? At the time, the court system noted his clear capacity for violence, along with his lack of completed anger management programming. He had just spent two years in prison for beating a man's head repeatedly into a wall and ripping pieces of his scalp clean from his head all over a $15 drug debt. (gasps) Are you serious? Mm Mm-hmm. And do they let him go? Yeah, they let him out. What? Yep. In just nine days, though, he was arrested again on another assault against his then common law wife. This charge would later be stayed. And in March, the same system that had just recognized his violent nature, not six months before, now granted him parole because Sean had been forthright and sincere about his struggles with parole officers. And he had demonstrated a willingness to deal with his anger. This is so crazy. Honestly, you're going to put in the parole report that he's violent and he's not completed his anger management. But then the parole board is going to say, yeah, good enough. We'll let him go. He's literally ripping pieces of a man's skull with his bare hands. And we're going to just let him go. Yes. Like, what did they think was going to happen? And that's what I think. We can blame Sean for being a dirtbag. But really, who's to blame is the system. For just repetitively letting him out again. That is so true. And honestly, I feel like, and people can come at me if you want, but all of those people in authority at that time that said, yeah, let's let him go. I feel like they have blood on their hands for his future murder victims. Because what could you expect? He has not shown any indication of even wanting to change. But he does present that image that he does want to change to the judges. And I'll share with you some of the statements that he's telling judges. But again, like you said, past history is a good predictor of future behavior. Yeah, honestly, you're going to let yourself be manipulated by this career criminal with 109 offenses where he's literally ripping a man's head apart. And oh, he says he's sorry and woe is me. So, okay, okay, little Sean, we'll let you go. Here's a lollipop. Yeah. Catch you on the butt as you go. Come on, wake up. We don't even let our little kids manipulate us like that. But they let Sean manipulate them. Yeah. And honestly, I stand by it. I feel like all those people that let him go time after time, 
sharing that responsibility of what came. Wait till you find out what leads up to his actual murders. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. What a dirtbag. So in 2008, Sean was actively searching out his Indigenous heritage, and it was a period of when he was actually calming down. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. He was studying the history of the reservation where he was born and proudly showed off his status card and discussed Indigenous spirituality with those around him. He was trying to write his life. So do you think if he hadn't been taken away and had been able to grow up in his culture and really known who he was and had this strong sense of self, do you feel like he would have gone down this path? I know it's impossible to really know, but just curious what your thought is because you've spent so much time researching. I think that if somebody had intervened earlier and told him who he was and given him a sense of purpose, that yeah, I don't think he would have gotten as bad as he did. But one of his diagnoses was FASD. Mm -hmm. And so we know that his prior life, it wasn't all rainbows and sunshine. Right. Right. There yeah. was history there as well. And when you take in the effect that generational trauma can have, even when you're not being raised by those families. That's true. Like that can have an effect too. And so I don't think that we, with Sean, we can clearly say whether he would have become this dirtbag if he wasn't raised in the foster system. Right. It seems like just his whole life, everything was stacked up against him. Mm -hmm. Not to justify what he's doing. I feel like he should have spent a longer period of time in jail and maybe could have been rehabilitated earlier on. It does seem that way. And I'll share with you some of Sean's writings. And he seems very introspective. Hmm. And so if he was given the time to develop that, I don't think he would have become the dirtbag that he was. Interesting. It is interesting. Those that fall to addictions, oftentimes they're huge empaths. Oh, for sure. They feel just so deeply. Well, yeah, and they're using substances to numb those feelings that they have. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's a good description of who Sean is. Okay. So in 2008, Sean was making efforts to try and write his life. But the wheels of violence and addiction had already been set in motion for him. Oh, yeah. Despite his renewed sense of identity, his criminal behavior just continued. Because how do you turn away from something that that's all you've known your whole life? Yeah, he's not going to do it voluntarily, that's for sure. Or not without a whole lot of help, mm -hmm. right? He would go on to attack a woman pushing a stroller in Winnipeg because the mother and the infant just happened to walk too close to Sean while he was smoking crack. What? Mm -hmm. He attempted to rob her to get more money for more drugs. What a low life. Yep. Pushing a mom with a stroller. Yeah, he attacked a woman pushing a stroller. That's despicable. But once he's high on drugs, he just has no reasoning. Yeah, no mm -hmm. regard for anyone. No, no regard for anyone. For this, he was given an 18-month conditional sentence, or a CSO, and three years probation. A CSO is a jail sentence that is served in the community with very strict curfews and rules to follow. Or at least that's how it's supposed to be. I was just going to say, yeah, right. Who's following up? Nobody. Yeah. And his parole doesn't even mean anything. Come on. Like, let's face it. No. So they had determined that this would be an appropriate way to deal with him, was we're not going to actually put him in jail. We're going to let him be on house arrest for six months. And then we'll let him go out during the day from six to eight. And then we'll go from six to nine. And geez, you'd think he was like the president's son or something <laughs> that they're giving all this special treatment to. Yeah. Sean was supposed to take part in mandatory counseling, mandatory residential rehab, narcotics and alcoholics anonymous, and do 100 hours of community service. He was to do no drugs or alcohol and to seek out and maintain employment or schooling and attend medical and psychiatric treatment as directed. Yeah, that sounds fantastic on paper, mm -hmm. but I already know that nobody's going to follow up with any of that. No. 
During the first six months, he was supposed to be on complete house arrest. I'm not really sure what this judge was thinking, giving this particular sentence to such a serial offender. And within a week, he had broken the terms by stealing a Ford Taurus and writing nine fraudulent checks. (laughs) Oh, and two violent robberies. Oh my goodness. It's not funny, but it's laughable. Like it's getting absurd now. Mm -hmm. Like seriously. Yep. So we were breaking the terms of his CSO. He finds himself back in prison, and after 13 and a half months, he again sits sweetly in front of a judge on May 26, 2010, to face 16 more charges. What? Mm-hmm. By now, the 51-year-old has been before almost 50 sentencing judges since he was 17. That's insane. Like, yeah. no more. Like, let's just leave him in there. The sheer volume of that is hard to comprehend. It is. Yeah. When given the turn to address the court, Sean tells the judge that he is now a changed man. (laughs) Baloney. (laughs) The past 13 and a half months have made him see the light and that he wants to take responsibility for his actions and doesn't want to hurt anyone anymore. Sean tells the judge all about the steps he has been making to correct the course of his life and that he is now willing to put forth guilty pleas for all of the charges he's faced if they will give him another CSO sentence. So he wants let back out in the community. Which he will just reoffend within a week. Yeah, probably. That's what his past tells you. He talks about how the last time he was given the opportunity for a CSO sentence, he had been doomed to failure because things hadn't worked out how he had expected them to. He vowed this time it would be different. But things never work out how we are expecting them to. No. You're always going to have problems. And you have been doing this for over 30 years now. But at this time, he submits some of his writings to the judge. And they're very compelling and telling about his views. He writes, I'm just a coward pretending not to be afraid, sounding confident, powerful, looking bold and fearsome as if I could rip off the heads of my opponents. But in my belly, the weedy bottom of my little belly is a boy still afraid, feeling alone, unknown if what he has will be enough to win to survive. Hoping, only hoping in its place, I could feel the anger slowly filling up my empty belly, and I loved the anger. It killed the fear. It was easier to attack than to run. It's better to be a lion, not a rabbit. Oh, the pain of being a rabbit. Once upon a time, there was born a baby boy, a lovely Indian boy as sweet and fat-cheeked and gifted by the creator as any baby anywhere. Except for the slightly darker hair and skin, he would have looked like your little boy. And like your little boy, he was born innocent, as innocent as a puppy. He goes on in this writing to compare himself to an innocent puppy that receives abuse when it had expected love. That is so introspective. Mm -hmm. And I believe it, like that that's how he felt. I don't think he's putting up a front with that. But he's going to continue to be a lion. That's the problem. Yeah, that's what he's trained his body to do. Yeah, and a lot of people will do that. You feel that vulnerability, and so to lash out, to stop yourself from being hurt. Absolutely. And so as he closes this letter, he makes even more of an appeal to the judge's sensitivities. He says, An innocent baby deserves not to be torn apart from its mother. While the baby is the wrong nationality, expendable, send the child away, damn the damage that this would cause. The innocent child's mind cannot understand Who are these strangers? Why? Why did they tease and torment and hurt this child's body and soul? The child's psyche tortured and with innocent wonder of a child, he can't understand why the rights that even a puppy understands were taken from him. 
Why, as a member of this human species, on the face of this earth, was he so despised when he was so innocent? He has only loved his mother. He had only done no wrong. But he was so despised, and he felt the horrid heat of hate against him. Why did they stomp out the last tiny vestiges of self-worth of this child? What wrong had he committed? Why was he kicked and beaten, raped and abused in both mind and body? Why? In pain, the shame, the guilt, the confusion, this lost soul of a child. A path of anger, stealing, living on the streets, never enough drugs to escape the pain, dull the memories, the nightmares. A young boy in a man's prison, a lost young man in a prison, a middle-aged man in a prison, throughout all a dim light, glimmer of hope, a feeling of worth. I am wanting and worthy of a better life. Absolutely, he is worthy of a better life. I have a few things here. (laughs) Very poetic. The way that he wrote that totally tugged on my heartstrings because Mm -hmm. the system did fail him. He was treated like an abused little puppy. However, him being able to recognize that and him being able to understand what has led him to where he is today, to me puts even more responsibility on him because he is understanding that he is making these choices to behave that way. And why he's making those choices. Right. Right. So he is fully aware that what he is doing is wrong, that I am the lion I'm going to attack. And so he's doing it knowingly and willingly Mm -hmm. and then using his past as the reason, which it very well is. I believe that it is, but he's not showing any willingness to to change his behavior. He hasn't up until this point. And we're going to talk about murder. So I know he's not going to in the future either. So yes, totally terrible. But he's being left on his own to try and recover from all of this. And that's not going to happen. So they did fail him in the sense where, well, then maybe we need to have him in an institution. Maybe it's not prison. Maybe we get him into a mental institution because he has all these mental health issues and he needs all this rehabilitation. They could have helped him that way. Not like, oh yeah, you're right. We feel really sad for you. We're going to let you back on the street where you can just continue to wreak havoc. Exactly. I think that's where the system totally failed in recognizing that just because he has a knowledge of why he's doing these things, they failed to recognize that he didn't have the skills to change his behavior on his own. Right. And I think sometimes it's almost more scary when they do have the knowledge of what they're doing. He's not delusional here. He is doing it totally consciously. Well, he consciously takes drugs to escape. Yeah. And he knows what kind of a monster he becomes when he takes drugs. Exactly. Despite the judge admitting that his rap sheet comes very close to the worst that she has ever seen, she is moved by Sean's plea. Oh. So she gives him an actual sentence that he has to serve in prison, but she gives him double credit for the time that he's already served. So it's like he's served 26 months. 27. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Are you going to give him a cookie too? Like, honestly, that's ridiculous. So she sentences him to an additional 19 months in prison for the 16 offenses he was currently pleading guilty for. And then... Her sentence is that he has to continue his CSO sentence that he had been given before after he is released from prison. Which he has never honored that CSO sentence ever. No. Unfortunately, none of this sentence kind of holds up. Why even give him the sentence? It, It is meaningless. It's like telling your kid to go to their room and then handing them your car keys so they can go out with their friends. Yep. Oh my gosh. Well, in some system error made by the courts, the judge's sentence wasn't actually ever carried out. Sean would be given an automatically earned remission for the time he had spent in jail, even though 
the judge had already given him a double credit. And this made his release date from prison six months shorter than was originally intended. So he was supposed to send another 19 months in jail. He only spent 13. And that was already shortened. Uh Uh-huh. On June 24th, 2011, Sean Lamb was released from prison and was said to have served all conditions and requirements of his incarceration. His sentence shouldn't have ended until December, and it should have been followed immediately by a very strict CSO. Yeah. And you know what is so aggravating about this? If I was the parent of one of those girls who gets murdered, I would be livid if I found out that this was his past. And he was just given chance after chance after chance. Mm -hmm. I would be so angry. And they rightfully should be angry. Yeah. Because when he commits his first murders, had his sentence actually been properly carried out, he would have still been in prison. Oh, We've seen that happen before. And it's just sickening that that happens. Mm -hmm. And even if he had been released early, he should have still been on his CSO. It was still supposed to be in effect on the fateful night when he was taken in for yet another assault charge. Oh my gosh. When he was picked up on June 21st, 2012, it was just another day for Sean and for the police. He was a known regular. He had just been released on yet another parole for the October 30th, 2011 assault of a 14-year-old runaway and trying to lure her into the sex trade through the use of drugs. Oh, he's so terrible. But yeah, we'll just let him back out. No problem. He's actually already been released again in the year that he's been out of jail from another charge. So he breaks his parole and they just let him back out. Uh Uh-huh. So why even do it? Like, just give him a hall pass. Honestly, that's all that they needed to do. Give him a hall pass. Sean Lamb, you may commit any crime you want. We don't care. It is so crazy. Yeah. And this is why I feel like we're just handing him his victims. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. He's trying to lure a 14-year-old girl into the sex trade industry. And we're just going to say, that's all right. It's so crazy. And I can't imagine the frustration of everyone involved to have repetitively dealt with the same individual over and over and over again. And nothing ever sticks. Yeah. They would have been on a first name basis with him. Mm -hmm. Like I'm trying to envision the police's perspective and I would have been so frustrated. We catch this guy over and over and over again and the courts just keep letting him out. Mm -hmm. And then to later find out what he does. Yep. And I wonder too, if it was getting tiring for Sean, was he tired of trying to do better? Was he tired of trying to put together a story of how he was going to make things different this time and to convince the judges and the parole officers to yet again, let him out? Because on that Thursday evening that Sean was brought into custody for sexually assaulting a 36-year-old woman, when he was taken in for questioning, Sean, out of the blue, admits to knowing where a body is hidden. What? Mm-hmm. So they're talking to him about sexually assaulting this woman, and he's like, oh, and I know where there's a body. Yep. And this is why I wonder, was Sean getting tired too? Well, is it almost like the little kid who keeps having temper tantrums just for the attention? Maybe. No one really knows what sparked this confession. And until that moment, police had never suspected Sean of having any connection with any of the numerous disappearances of Indigenous women that were going missing from the streets of Winnipeg. How could they not? He's a violent sexual predator. But they thought he was just this kind of petty criminal. He's not. He's violent. He's ripping apart a man's head. He's sexually assaulting women. He's pushing ladies with strollers over. Mm -hmm. And he's not even going to cross your radar. Sorry, I love our police, but, and I don't like to bash them, but system fail. This is a total system failure. Yeah. 
The disappearance rate of Indigenous women is staggering still today, and so is the murder rate. The Native Women's Association of Canada reports that Indigenous women make up 10% of total murder cases in Canada, while they only represent 3% of the population. That is so wild to me. Mm -hmm. It's a sad statistic that's met with a lot of criticism on how the system handles the disappearances of these women. Yeah, which means that for Indigenous women, a good portion of them are being murdered. Yeah. It's startling. So at 7 p.m. that same night that he's taken in for the sexual assault of a woman, following Sean's directions, Winnipeg police find human remains at the rear of a vacant home at 797 Simcoe Street. It was partially covered with pallets and a metal cot. The female body had been wrapped in plastic and was in an advanced state of decomposition. So he just threw her out in the back and covered her with trash. Mm -hmm. Dental records confirm that it is the remains of Lauren a blacksmith. But no cause of death could be made because of the state her body was in. Lorna was 18 years old and had been missing for six months. Her mother had posted countless emotional pleas to find her daughter and had held vigils in hopes of gaining any information about her daughter's whereabouts. And this whole time, her body had been laying in a back alley that was easily visible from Sean's kitchen window. From his kitchen window. So he could have looked out at that dumpster every single day and got a little thrill. And he could walk by and see, oh yeah, no one's discovered her yet. There were times when he actually attended the vigils. Melissa, that's so disturbing. Mm -hmm. That happens often though, where they will attend the vigils and even help with the searching. He was getting off on it. Yeah. So police found this very suspicious that Sean would know about where this body was hidden and started pressing for more information, and even offered Sean money to provide them with any details that he could. What? We'll get into that. Don't worry. It's going to play a huge role (laughs) in how his conviction goes down. Police were also suspicious of another body that had also been found in the area wrapped in a similar way, and wanted to know if Sean had any information about that as well. Over the next three days and $1,500 later, that was placed in Sean's canteen account at the remand center where he was being held, the police, through a series of statements made by Sean, put together a picture that Sean had taken his violence to the next level and had begun to murder women, all young, vulnerable Indigenous women who had been previously reported missing by their families. Is that even legal? To pay him for information? It's not. Yeah, that's got to be a breach of so much conduct. It's not even funny. Mm -hmm. And it does play into his court case later. Well, it totally would because you can't buy a confession. Mm -hmm. But at this time, they just had so many missing Indigenous women that they just needed information. And they thought that this was the way to get through to him. And so Sean just said, you know, like, I need this much money and I'll tell you information about this person. And I'll tell you information about that person. And that body that you found over there? Yeah, give me 600 and I will tell you about that one too. Oh my goodness. Mm Mm-hmm. On Monday, June 25th, police announced that Sean had been charged with three counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of three women. Tanya Jane Nepinick, 31, Carolyn Marie Sinclair, 25, and Lorna Blacksmith, 18. All three young women had at one point in their lives lived at the same First Nations community, Pukachowagan, in northern Manitoba. From his later confessions, the police and the families of Carolyn and Lorna learned how they died. On December 18th, 2011, so before he would have even been out on his original sentence. Yeah, so while he should have still been in jail, Mm -hmm. 
Sean had met 25-year-old Carolyn Sinclair on the street outside of his apartment at 822 Notre Dame Ave in the west end of Winnipeg. The area is well known for drug deals and sex trafficking. Carolyn had left home on December 13th and would not be seen again after meeting Sean. According to Sean, the two agreed to go to a crack house on Beverly Street. There, he gave Carolyn $100 to purchase drugs, and once the transaction was made, the two returned to Sean's apartment. Once back at the apartment, the two settled in to smoke the crack cocaine that they had purchased. When only two rocks remained, according to Sean, Carolyn grabbed the drugs from the living room table and ran and locked herself in the bathroom, keeping all the drugs for herself. Sean was furious and grabbed an axe handle and started beating on the door and yelling obscenities, trying to get her to come out. Oh my gosh. And I thought, who keeps an axe handle in a city apartment? Yeah. I had a hard time believing that this was a weapon of convenience. Oh, I believe it with Sean. But why does he have an axe in his apartment? Because this probably isn't his first murder. Yeah. I bet he found the axe handle by the dumpster or something. Oh, maybe. And was like, oh, that's kind of like a bat. It's a good weapon. For whatever reason, he had an axe handle in his apartment. Carolyn fatefully opened the door to an enraged Sean. In his fury, he beat her with the handle of the axe repeatedly. After he had beaten her with the axe handle, Carolyn, ever the fighter, still remained conscious. This enraged Sean even more, and he wrapped his bare hands around her throat and choked her until she was dead. Oh my goodness. And this is according to Sean. This is what he's actually admitting to. So it could have been even way worse than this. Oh yeah. He left her body in his bathroom for several days until he finally decided what to do with her and obtained the necessary items. Carolyn's naked body was wrapped in plastic and then stuffed into a large duffel bag. He then strong-armed the duffel bag to the garbage bin outside of his apartment building near the 700 block of Notre Dame Ave and Toronto Street, where he just left her there to rot. He didn't even make the effort to bother to even put her body in the dumpster. He just threw it alongside the dumpster. What a creep. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until March 31st that it was actually found. It took over three months for someone to notice the suspicious package that was leaking fluids. What? Mm-hmm. That is so wild to me. That just tells you kind of what area it is. Yeah. Carolyn was from Russo River First Nation and was pregnant when she had met Sean. Oh. So he's picking vulnerable people who he doesn't think are going to be missed. Mm-hmm. And what a terrifying end for her. Yeah. Lorna Blacksmith would have the misfortune of meeting Sean just a few short weeks later on January 11th, 2012. So again, while Sean should have been serving his CSO and on strict house arrest. On January 9th, a couple of days before she was last seen, Lorna had made a Facebook post about being in the West End. Her mom had dropped her off at a friend's house on Toronto Street. The friend's house was a known residence of a drug dealer, but as she had gotten out of the car, Lorna had promised her mom that this would be her last night out. Sadly, this was the last time her mom would see her. She would make a haunting last text to her mom at 4 a.m. on the day that she was murdered, asking, Mom, where are you? <gasps> that would be the last communication that her mom would have from her. That is so heartbreaking. That evening, Lorna found herself in Sean's apartment smoking six rocks of crack cocaine that he had previously purchased. Lorna picked up his phone to call her supplier for more crack. For whatever reason, Sean got extremely territorial over his phone and was angry that Lorna had the nerve to use it to contact her drug dealer. It seems like such a small thing to trigger him, someone touching your phone. 
Yeah. And I thought maybe it's because it was part of his probation that he wasn't supposed to be using drugs. And so maybe he thought that this was going to leave evidence on his phone. Oh, maybe. But he wasn't following any other part of his probation. So I'm not really sure why he would worry about that particular thing. Yeah. And he doesn't really have probation. Let's face it. Yeah. In a rageful fit, Sean grabbed a nearby electrical cord and strangled Lorna with it. What? Sean claimed that when his rage had subsided, he had tried to revive Lorna by performing CPR, but she was already gone. After purchasing more drugs and consuming them all by himself this time, Sean went to a nearby construction site and stole some plastic sheeting and proceeded to remove Lorna's clothing, tied her into a fetal position with a beige scarf, and then wrapped her with the plastic. Her body was carried across the snow-covered lane and dumped along beside the dumpster, this time in a back lane of an abandoned home of 797 Simcoe Street. Wow. He is so volatile. Mm-hmm. He just flies off the handle. For the next six months, Sean would look out his kitchen window to the spot where Lorna's body lay decomposing, until he was finally the one to tell the police where the body was. Was he just sick and tired of having to see it? I don't know. And that's what I mean. Like, was he just tired that all of a sudden he just started telling them everything? And over here touching his phone. Mm-hmm. Buddy. No, I can't even call you buddy. <laughs> He's so vile. Mm-hmm. Based on the statements that he had made with police, Sean was charged with three counts of second-degree murder. Right, so there's one more to discuss. Mm -hmm. What happened to Tanya was never released, and the charges for her death would later be stayed on November 22nd, that same year. What? It's known that police, after consulting with the prosecution, felt that they had enough evidence against Sean to charge him with her death. Police believe, based on Sean's disjointed first statements, that he had murdered the 31-year-old Tanya on September 13, 2011, on the day that he had met her on the street where she had left her home to go and get pizza. After his statements to police, a week-long search for her body took place and included the Brady Road landfill area where dumpsters from around Sean's apartment would have been emptied. But the search was in vain and Tanya's body to this day still has not been found. No way. Mm -hmm. Tanya was from Pine Creek First Nations, just north of Dauphin, and she had left behind two small children. Oh, I thought he was confessing and telling them where the bodies were. He is in bits and pieces. During his statements to police, Sean had taunted police saying that he had information for at least five different victims, but refused to give them any more leads. Oh, I believe there's way more. You don't escalate to that just overnight. So during these interactions with police, he never fully comes out and says, this is what I did when he's talking to the police. He's telling them bits and pieces of, oh, you might find a body here. And you know that body that you found in March? Well, I know why she was there. And so they take this conglomeration of all of his statements and they start piecing it together. And that's how they come up with these three charges against him. How I told you about the murders, that comes from his confessions for his deal later on. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So the police don't have all this information at the beginning. This is afterwards. That's why you know exactly what happened. Yeah, because he later tells the full story in his confession when he signs a deal. Right. But at the time, police don't know the full story. They're putting pieces of his statements on different days together and saying, oh, well, when he was talking about this, this must have meant this woman. And when he was talking about this, this must have meant this woman. Right. Okay. In an effort to find their own leads, police searched Sean's home. But the only collaborating evidence they ever found to any of his stories was a small amount of Carolyn's blood that was found in his bathroom. And the amount was so small that there was no way to guess how it had been left there without the admissions of Sean's statements to police. There was no other physical evidence ever found. 
Wow. I would not have suspected him to be so thorough in cleaning up. Mm -hmm. No witnesses would come forward either. There were neighbors that would tell police that they had heard arguing between a man and a woman coming from Sean's apartment, but no one could place the three women specifically with Sean. One community worker would remember Sean frequently attending the Feed and Lamb Street missions meals, but could not recall anything that would tie Sean directly to the murders. In November 2013, when Sean appeared before the courts, the prosecution felt that there wasn't enough evidence to bring about any conviction. The only real piece of evidence that they had were Sean's statements to the police, and these were being largely scrutinized because the police had paid for them. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. No kidding. A system of red tape stood between the truth and it being admissible in court. They just shot themselves in the foot doing Mm -hmm. that. Yep. Because the police had made three different payments into Sean's prison canteen account in order for him to spill the beans, as he called it, it was a very real possibility that the confessions would be ruled inadmissible. Well, yeah, it's basically like you're bribing someone to take the fall Mm -hmm. is what it would appear to be. Or you could not prove that that wasn't the case. That's right. And so in an effort to have Sean behind bars again and brought to some accountability for his confessed crimes, the defense and the prosecution struck a deal that was then presented to a judge on November 14, 2013, with Sean in attendance so he could agree to the terms of the deal. Tanya's murder was left out of the plea bargain. What? Sean had not talked about Tanya as much as he had Carolyn and Lorna, and so police had less to work with. Sean was aware of this and recanted the things that he had said in regards to Tanya's murder and refused for it to be entered into the plea bargain. What? Mm-hmm. Sadly, her murder never saw justice. <gasps> Not at all. Nope. Her family is still waiting. She remains a missing person on a long list of Indigenous women that have gone missing. But based upon the information that the police do have, they've told her family that she is dead. And we know who killed her, but we're not going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. They can't. They don't have enough to prosecute him for it. And again, it's just another system fail. It is. And we know, I'm not saying in this case particularly, but we know that Indigenous women do not get the justice that they deserve, that often police are not looking for them as hard. They're not, they're just adding them to the list. Because there's so many. Yeah. And they're not getting the due diligence that they deserve. I just can't believe that this still happens. Yeah. So the deal that Sean would agree to was two counts of manslaughter. What? For the deaths of Carolyn and Lorna for a 10-year sentence for each of the murders. So 20 years in total? Uh Uh-huh. And does he get parole in 13 months? Nope, not 13, but we'll talk about that too. Oh my goodness. So the lawyers outline this deal in front of a judge, and then they have to ask Sean if he's agreeable to it. When he's asked if he wants to say anything, he begins to rescind his guilty pleas. What? All because... There was a reference made by a doctor's report that suggested that Sean was a sociopath. And so he's like, I'm not really game for that. Because he called me that, I don't want to agree to this deal. I'm going to rescind all of my confessions. His attempt to derail the deal was met with cries of outrage from family members. And there was like absolute commotion in the courthouse. Several people had to be escorted out. Yeah, I can't blame them, to be honest. Mm -hmm. They were already super unhappy with this deal even being made. Yeah, 10 years is nothing. And we already know he's not going to have to serve 10 years if his pattern continues. Yeah. Once the judge had said that he would not put any weight on the reference and explained that if Sean didn't make the plea that the case would go to trial, Sean changed his mind and made this statement to the court. I want to take responsibility. 
Apologizing isn't going to do any good. An apology is nothing. It doesn't change what happened. I am sorry, and I mean that. I have empathy and I have remorse, for sure. I've taken responsibility. I left the door open for my addiction to take control, and under the influence of drugs and alcohol, I turn into a monster at times. To convince the judge that the deal should be accepted, Sean's lawyer made the argument that Sean had always been a victim of the system, and his addictions to drugs and the lack of supports available to him led to the murders. The defense called attention to Sean's willingness to admit his faults and not take advantage of the police's poor evidence against him. He pointed out that it was only because of Sean speaking up about what he knew that led to Lorna's body being found in the first place, and any of the truth coming to light. Sean's lawyer made the statement, with treatment he can become law-abiding, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel for Mr. Lamb. <laughs> okay, I'm out, listeners. Goodbye. Are you serious? Yep. There's a light at the end of the tunnel for Mr. Lamb. They still think he can be redeemed. <laughs> no, he knows he's going to viciously attack or even murder someone if he takes drugs, yet he's not making any effort to get off of drugs or to rehabilitate himself that way. They've given him the opportunity to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They've given him those opportunities to be in those programs and he's not done it. And he's admitting, I know that when I do it, I'm going to hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. So that's on you just as much as it is on the system failing you. Absolutely. With the plea bargain accepted by the presiding judge, Sean Cameron Lamb, at the age of 54, was handed a 20-year sentence with two years off already for time served. Oh. The judge argued that while the sentence was a little less than he could have been given for second-degree murder, that given Sean's age and health and the shorter life expectancy of inmates, that he likely would not leave prison alive. What do you mean likely? Let's make sure he doesn't. Give him 200 years and then we know. That's ridiculous. Yeah. The judge also recommended that Sean serve his time in prison outside of the Prairie Provinces, in a location not revealed to public sources for his own safety. The case was a high-profile case at the time, and the judge feared that Sean would be a target of the other prisoners. Since being incarcerated, Sean has refused to make any more statements about the information he told police he did have about other homicide victims. At least two other provincial authorities have tried to connect him to missing Indigenous women, but to date, no more charges have been laid against him. Yeah, he's keeping his mouth shut because he knows he's going to get out on parole. Yeah. Don't tell me he's out. Sean will become eligible for parole this year. No. On the ninth anniversary of his sentencing. On his ninth anniversary. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't even have to complete one full sentence before being eligible for parole. Nope. This year in November, he will become eligible for parole. That makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. Hopefully the system takes a good look at its past failures when it considers his release. I don't, I'm stunned. And we know that he wasn't even charged for the murders that he did confess to. Yeah, only two and got really a slap on the wrist for those ones as well. Mm -hmm. Justice was not carried out. Mm -mm. So that is the case of the rage-filled career dirtbag, Sean Cameron Lamb, and the system that helped create more victims. Yeah, they helped create a murderer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, Canada, don't let us down. Don't let him out. I do find it super interesting that his targets weren't representatives of his abusive foster family. But he did stay true to serial killers who normally will pick their victims from their own race. Yeah, that's true. But he didn't actually have the look of being Indigenous. 
Oh, he took after his Caucasian part of his family. Mm-hmm. And I find it so interesting that his victims were more indicative of who his mother was. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I hate to even say it, but I wonder if him looking more Caucasian played a role into him getting let out so many times. If he looked more indigenous, would he have gotten all those free passes? Maybe. Because, I mean, I hate to say it, but there is still stereotypes with that type of thing. Absolutely. Or do you think later on he was using his indigenous heritage and his experiences in the system and being mistreated as an argument of why they should give him a second chance? Yeah, who knows? Did he work both sides of the system? Probably. Either way, no matter what he looked like, he's a dirtbag. Yes. And I can't believe that he could be let out. And honestly, like we can sit here and say, there's no way. There's no way after doing all that kind of stuff. But if we look at all of his past convictions and even the sentencing that he got, no, I can't confidently say he's not going to be let out. Yeah. So we will have to keep an eye out to bring you an update from his parole case to tell you what happens in an upcoming episode. Please do. And I hope it's good news and that he never gets out. But we will be back with you next week where I'll bring you another case. Until then. See ya. Bye. working are you plugged in christy you have to show up why am i not working there we go now i'm in business thanks for showing up christy (laughs) i'm here i'm here all day (laughs) signing autographs for realsies was daryl dorcas no not dorcas dorcas (laughs) but maybe he is a dorcas (laughs) you might think that (laughs) well if he killed three women he is he's a dirtbag dorcas yes (laughs) where they would receive Hash, not hashtag. Hash browns? Hash browns. (laughs) Did I say often enough? Holy cow. (laughs) And the West End of... In the West End of... No, I can say In the West End of where? (laughs) Tell me where, Melissa. Okay. The Brady... The Brady Layet... Oh, my goodness. Included the... The what? Hold on. I'll get it. (laughs) It included the what? having a hard time speaking today. I know, but it doesn't make sense in my brain. Does it make sense? Yes. Oh my goodness. Quit second guessing yourself. Just talk. Okay. <laughs> or put them in Gen Pop and let it take care of itself. Oh. Not that we're promoting more violence or murder <laughs> in prison. We're not saying that at all. I'll just got all that out. What did you just say? I don't <laughs> I know. Remember. How am I going to edit any of that? Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. J. 
Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.